Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey folks, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. Joining me today from E2 Open is Pavan Joshi. He is currently SVP of Products and Strategy. Welcome, Pavan. Thank you, Santosh. Great to be here. It's awesome to have you on. And I suspect for a lot of our listeners here, E2 Open is a household name. And really kind of the leader in building this concept of the connected supply chain platform. And with that, bringing together the world's largest network of interconnected partners. But before we, we kind of jump into the, the real meat of this episode, I'd love to hear your story. How did you get into the world of supply chain and uh, really kind of thinking about technology with that in this industry? Sure. So as you would guess, you know, I was born from India, born in India. I spent my formative years back there and was always interested in engineering, loved to tinker around with things. And I did my undergrad there in India. And my focus there was on manufacturing systems. So how products are made, how things are made, machines that make them, so on and so forth. And that was always interesting, right? Not only tinkering around things, but how do you actually produce things that you tinker with? That kind of got me started. Did my undergrad there from IIT Delhi and then came over to the U.S. to do my master's at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Again, the focus on manufacturing systems and uh, manufacturing systems engineering. And then my perspective, it was a very industry-rich, interactive program at, in Madison. And we did a lot of projects, you know, with companies hands-on. And, you know, as you start getting into the what happens inside a shop floor, you very quickly realize in the real world, a lot of action happens outside the shop floor. Right. It is, it's not how well your machines are producing. It's how good your components are, your raw materials are, your ingredients are, how good your factory produces, your logistics, you know, all the operations there is. And even if you can produce the best product, how you sell it, how you deliver it becomes extremely important. So there was a quick realization that a lot of the action happens outside the four walls of, this, of, of, a, of a facility or of any brand. And, you know, as I went through my studies, I worked with my advisor, Dr. Viramani, got encouraged into staying back there, doing some research. This was right at the peak of, you know, internet coming in to the world of supply chain and e-commerce and what is the future going to be like, which really led me to, you know, kind of exploring what we're doing now at e Open, which is how do you actually make a company, a brand, you know, compete in the real world? It's not how good the brand is, it's how good the supply chain before it. The, before the brand that's producing the product and after the brand that's helping them sell the product. And that's really been my journey over the last, you know, 20, 25 years in, in supply chain. Awesome. So with that, you know, we're wrapping up this season where we've been focused on the intersection of AI and supply chain. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious how you've parsed this AI mania we've been in over the last 12 months. Kind of <laughs> what is top of mind for you personally and, and professionally as you hear this? I think that the mania is the right word. You know, <laughs> there's a presentation we did at our, at our annual conference 
about three or four weeks ago, three weeks ago rather, that was really about how do you explain, you know, what is AI, right? What is behind those two, two letters, A and I? And as we take a step back and really start thinking about it, I think the core concepts around AI have been there for the longest period of time, right? And it is not something new that we've just uncovered. I think it is, it's become, it's relatively new when we've discovered what AI is. And I say that about supply chains also, right? Nobody knew what supply chains were until the pandemic hit. Then everybody, is, <laughs> everybody who was not That's a professional right. suddenly got to know what supply chains are. It's not that they suddenly emerged. They were always there behind the scenes. And I look at AI almost in that thing, right? There were pieces of AI that we were, and you double click on it. AI is essentially having machines automate the work humans do and make them more and more aware and learn, almost self-learn, or if they've been exposed to certain types of environments, be able to make those decisions, much like human beings, right? Why do we become experts? We become experts because we've gone through an education program that exposes us to certain environments and trains us so that when we get exposed to things that we don't know about, we are able to extrapolate and solve those problems. And if we are not able to, then we learn from that experience, put it back into our thing and continue to move on. That's really what we're trying to do with computers right now. And those things existed in, in bits and pieces all around, all over the place. But what did not exist was two, I think, two major things. One was how much compute could you deploy at a reasonable price, which has dramatically changed over the last few years. And, more, and the second piece was how quickly could you acquire data to actually start learning, right? Which is connectivity. Like you can learn from your surroundings, but your surroundings are only so much give you only so much exposure. And I think that really is the one that has contributed to massive explosion of concepts of AI that always existed. Like neural networks existed for the longest period of time. Like you were able to build deep neural networks because you had compute available and information to run those com that computer. And that's really how we think about it. Now, if I take one step back and think about it from the perspective of E2 Open, our company, we've been looking at AI and concepts of AI even before it was called AI. Right? We have you know, what, 20 years ago, you know, we invented this concept of demand sensing, which is not traditional forecasting, which is, you know, what did you do in the past? And that'll predict what your future is, but really look at what's happening right now, recognize those patterns as they've had in the past, and then extrapolate into the future what they will. So we have concepts around demand sensing that we've been dabbling on for the last 20 years. And over the last 20 years, we've built them to a point where they operate at scale, like large CPG companies running their forecasting process in an almost lights out mode every day for the next 13 days. And it runs for about 60 minutes for every distribution center, for every skew in that distribution center, produce a forecast against which you can run automated replenishment planning, right? And showing that it actually generates a forecast accuracy of 20, 30, 40% higher is super important, right? So being able to benchmark that. We've been doing that benchmark study for 10 years that consistently results in that kind of thing. So in my mind, it's not that AI suddenly has burst into the forefront. I think there are implementations and parts of AI that are there that we are now finding more and more uses for, and we are learning more and more the fact of what AI is. We are almost like commercializing AI or consumerizing AI, if you want to call it that. I, I, I like that, that line around consumerizing AI, right? And if we look at the examples, like the, the primary example around ChatGPT is basically this chat-based interface where you get this humanistic kind of agent that can help you 
summarize tasks, you know, mm-hmm. think through certain problems, opportunities. Do you see that kind of co-pilot relationship becoming a mainstay within kind of enterprise supply chain software over time? Given there's all this to, to your point, 20 plus years of data and sometimes decades more, depending on the organization. Yeah, I, I see that happening. And I see Santosh it happening along two dimensions, right? One is there are humans trying to interact in a chat type interface, right? Which is, yes, interesting from an end consumer standpoint, but that's not how you operate, you know, a large multinational business with thousands and thousands of SKUs and hundreds of thousands of suppliers and thousands of distributors and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of logistics service providers. Like you need systems and processes that automate a lot of those things. So when I look at concepts around generative technology or AI in general in the broader field, the real AI is, you know, if you, if you use the iceberg analogy, what we see is really the tip of the iceberg that's floating above water, right? That's the gen AI that we see in our, in our day-to-day thing. But the real impact of AI is what's below the iceberg, which is how do systems, decision-making get completely changed and automated because you're leveraging information in ways that humans could not. There's only so much information as humans we could process when it comes on a screen. So what do you do? You start searching for things, you create your own filters and all that. What if you could ask, you don't need that. Your machines are powerful enough and and they have access to information that can make those decisions for you almost in a lights out mode that you don't have to worry about. And what you really worry about is the exceptions, right? When they're not able to solve the problem, that surfaces up. And the mode of interaction could become a co-pilot, right? As you actually described. Like seven seven out of the 10 times that you actually saw this problem, Mr. User, you actually ran an expedite process. Well, now, how does that help? If it's the same user, the user probably knows what the expedite is. Well, what if the user went on vacation and there's somebody else replacing it? That person does not have that luxury of experience, right? So what do I do? The co-pilot actually helps you and says, look, seven out of 10 times, your colleague actually did this. So I can now do my job better rather than guessing, right? Or making an issue. And I look at the co-pilots kind of serving those roles. The co-pilots also serving roles where you're encountering something that is not that is new to you, but is not new to the machine. Like the pattern of what actually has emerged across hundreds and thousands of data points leads you to, you know, the three things that actually look very similar to this kind of an issue. You should actually run an expedite because the last three times something similar to this happened, not exactly the same, something similar to this happened, you actually expedite it. And that's where I think you know, these large learning models and the ability to deliver some of those insights in a co-pilot type environment, even to the experts, becomes really interesting. And yeah. I see the future there, but I see the massive transformation really is below the iceberg, which is how do you actually automate traditional processes that just rely on, you know, looking back and forecasting, looking at inventory optimization, they're just based on service levels, not based on variability. Looking yeah. at, you know, trying to forecast what your supplier is going to give you rather than reach out to the supplier and say, hey, what are you going to give? Why would I actually make a deterministic problem a stochastic problem and try to forecast it? Yeah. So I'm going to kind of continue, Paul, on this thread a bit. You know, in in an industry where CIOs, CTOs are kind of looking at this trend, their board is likely asking them questions on it. How should they think through adopting or maybe, uh, you know, before adopting, like piloting, testing out certain applications of AI within their organization? Do you have some type of a framework or, or thought process 
you would suggest to them? Yeah. I think the, the key first and foremost is really recognizing AI as a means to an end. The end goal is, you know, running your operations better, right? Turning, turning disruptions into opportunities and, how, and really leveraging your people and their talent and kind of almost becoming a force multiplier. Right. Not saying that I need 10 more people to do this, but saying yeah. I want to actually free up those 10 experts that I leverage have and actually leverage them across the board. Right. That's that in my mind, recognizing those three things yeah. is step one to actually, I would say, position AI correctly. If, I follow, if you want to use that price, because it's very easy to say, okay, I need an AI strategy. So let me go put an AI platform in place. Like, okay. Platform in place. Fine. You'll put an AI platform in place, but how does that AI? And how does that platform translate into the actual day-to-day operations? How do you actually bring it in and make it operational? So when we look at AI, you know, we are thinking about it along you know, three or four dimensions. It is understanding what is it that you want to do? Uh, how do you actually solve that problem? And start off with how will you actually make it operational? Because that's where the rubber hits the road. It's great to have a co-pilot interface and go invest in that too. But how does that actually change the needle? How does it change the day-to-day interaction for you and make that happen? So thinking about the orchestration as a, of the result that's going to come up is extremely important. Like you would have the best demand sensing tool that is predicting and forecasting. But if you don't connect it with your supply planning and you don't connect it with your procurement operations, how good is a forecast? Okay, fine, I generated yeah. 50% more accurate forecast, but so what? I have that, that, that loop is an open loop. It doesn't go anywhere. So really understanding how you operationalize. Uh, the second thing is understanding when you buy all these things and you deploy all these things, how would the users actually drive trust in it? Because one of the things that you often see is that I don't trust a black box system. Why? Because I don't know why it gave me that answer. So being able to provide some amount of transparency on why it resulted in what it is saying you know, is extremely important because you want not just to change the process, you want the process to be adopted. Because the moment somebody doesn't adopt the process, Go back to the old ways of spreadsheets and all too. That's what you don't want. Yeah. Um, the third thing, as you start thinking about AI, is kind of goes hand in hand, is access to data and being able to make sure that there's privacy in the mix. So when you're creating your AI strategy, understanding what problem you're trying to solve, how will you drive trust in that solution, and how would you power the AI with data in a secure manner that is not going to compromise your privacy. And most importantly, have access to that data because you don't know, you need to know where that data is coming from. So if you think about forecasting, uh, keep going back to the forecasting example, the true data around forecasting is not me in terms of what I shipped. It should really be me, what my products have actually been sold at a retailer or by a distributor or a value-added reseller, because I can keep pushing my products into the channel. If they're not being consumed and going out of the channel, yeah, that's not forecast for me. I cannot forecast what I'm pushing because then I don't know well what is selling or not selling. So understanding who has the data, which is the distributor, the retailer, the reseller, getting that information from them, making sure that you're not compromising the processing of that information by divulging each other's data to each other, mm-hmm. and then applying that back into generate a better forecast, making sure your planners understand what why engine is predicting the forecast what it is, and then making sure that more accurate forecast actually goes into execution. So when you think about CIOs and CSOs, we always recommend start with the end goal in mind, and then from there say what you choose is the appropriate technology that provides transparency, 
which goes back and says, you and, and that technology should provide you access to information. A lot of that is outside your four walls because all, most of the activity happens outside your four walls. And then make sure that when you bring that in, you're not compromising on security and, and privacy on those things. And so, you know, when certain corporate buyers in the audience are kind of evaluating or sitting down with, call it, handful of vendors that they've decided can add value, can deliver that end result. What question should they be asking? It sounds like going back to your statement around data security and privacy, that's one important one. They need to not just ask a question, but probably have like a workshop in and around to truly understand. But is there almost kind of this checklist that they should be covering off to that, to then ensure that they align with the strategy and these four principles you've put forth? Yeah, I think the biggest checklist that they should have is what's the total cost of ownership? Because there's a lot of AI technology that's available where you have, as a buyer, have to bring data to that technology. You have to ensure privacy. You have to ensure there's constant connectivity and the fact that there's fresh data being fed into that piece of technology that is going to do something for you, whatever that something is defined to be, right? And in my mind, that is really the biggest thing. If you think about supply chain, if you think about 80, 90% of the activity happens outside the supply chain, the key thing really here is how do you actually, in a, in a very sustainable manner, in a continuous manner, in an almost near real-time manner, or right-time manner, if you want to call it, if you want to use that term, consistently bring in information across the disparate sources of information that exist across the entire supply chain, right? Three, four, five tiers up. Right. And those three, four, five tiers up, I might have a distribution of suppliers or logistics service providers that have different technology, technical maturity. Some of them are willing to give you data and API. Some of them just say, I don't have anything. I don't have my infrastructure here, but I can send you an email with an Excel. Will you be able to consume it? Being, the, the, being able to consume that vast variety of information coming in and being able to digest that back in, being able to have the right ways to normalize, harmonize information into the AI component is super important. My, my contention is right now in this day and age, it's very easy to build a quote-unquote AI-based application. There's so many tools that exist out there, so many ways in which you can explore it. You pick a use case, you build that up. Where the rubber hits the road is how are you actually going to feed data? Because all these AI things need knowledge, they need information, just like us, right? We went through, through school to actually learn what we learned and all during our job, we are constantly learning. That machine that you're trying to artificially create, that AI needs information. Where's that information going to come from? How are you going to expose it? How are you going to expose it continuously and make it aware of when the decision point comes? It is not just aware of historically and it has learned everything. It is also aware of everything that's happening in its current surrounding to be able to make the right information, the right decision. And that, I think, is the most important thing when we start thinking about picking AI. You might pick a, a, a quote-unquote inferior AI but a very superior methodology to actually feed that AI and achieve much, much better results, much more consistent results, much more, I would say, results that people buy into and can stand behind and agree and adopt than a very smart AI that struggles because you cannot consistently feed data and and nobody trusts it anymore. Yeah. Right. We've seen this in in chat uh, GPT, right? Some of the initial results of awesome, but as it has learned through all the major interactions, some of the results started degrading because all this, all the nonsense that was fed in just to test this thing out 
became something that you're learning from. So there is an amount of you know, curation of how you learn and when you learn and what should you learn as a part of yeah. that as well. It's interesting, kind of, you broke it down that way because we, we think about it as what is your data moat, right? You can build a transformer. Transformer technologies have been around for years, and we even had a, a prior guest kind of break down the history of the transformer itself. But we always then ask, like, where's your data? Where's it coming from? Why is it advantage? Why can't others get access to it? But equally, kind of to what you're saying, how do you have a pipeline that consistently feeds it, but you're closing the feedback loop, right? As to you proposed this, actually it was that. Okay, why don't you use that to improve and further tune yourself, right? Um, exactly. But stepping ahead here, I'd be curious, like, do you have a, a customer case study of recent where somebody's adopted one of the tools that you and the team have built that really kind of leverages and is a good example of how AI can really generate results when properly implemented? Yeah, I mean, I gave the example of the CPG company. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't take you know, a lot of names, but you know, our demand sensing runs a, a very large footprint of customers in the CPG space. I mean, some of the largest ones are using that. And we and they tend to use it in a pretty much lights out mode, which is, you know, in, in the short term, in the execution window, you know, you're less worried about what your forecast is and for, what you're really worried about is, are you actually deploying the right product in the right DC to cover OER consumption? Is, that is super important, right? That's the make or break. So this is what I talked about, the closed loop execution. It's not just about did you generate a better forecast? How did you actually use it to actually make a difference? Right? So that's what we that's what we've been doing. And this the these set of customers essentially look at their past essentially the demand sensing application that we have looks at everything that has happened in history. Like it historically looks at, you know, what orders came in, what were the shipments that went out what actual sales happened. And in many cases, it actually reaches out to bring in retailer information from the stores to say, what was the setup? Not just what you're selling through, what you pushed into the DC, but what was the action setup? It combines all that, creates a segmentation model to be able to predict you know, what, should be, what you should be doing based on the next few days. And the next few days information is fed by what are your open orders and what are your plan shipments? Because that is really what drives replenishment. So it's basically combining all that together and generating, let's say, a 13-day forecast. And we do that for every DC and every product category in that DC around the globe. So very large footprint. We do that once in 24 hours. And we that in a lights out mode goes into the deployment planning, which basically says, here's how many trucks I need. Here's how much pallets I need to load into these trucks. Here's the DC that we need to send to. Now, if you think about the scale, these are like thousands and thousands of millions of planning points that have been done every 24 hours, right? So no humans yeah. can do it. So the, the default is going back to what we shipped yesterday or what we shipped last month, which actually makes the problem tractable from a human standpoint, but not accurate enough. So that's, that's what we've yeah. been doing for the last 10 years plus, right? Yeah. And one last thing is we've actually taken one step further and said, look, Every day or every week, we are adding seven or eight days worth of you know, new data points of the model itself, predicting something and the actual that we are re registering against. What if the model actually wakes up every seven days and self-tunes itself? And by self-tune, it basically says, if, if, I, if I actually predicted 
if I knew everything that I did, what would my model be, right? And it actually self-tunes itself and says, here's how much weightages I'm going to assign to these things. Here's the methods I'm going to use. Here's the recategorization I'm going to do. So it's not only predicting, it's also self-learning and self-tuning as it's going along. So, you know, the core concept of where we started this discussion is it is being aware of situations. It is actually absorbing that situation and predicting something and learning from the fact that what did, I, what did I predict? Was it right or wrong? If it was wrong, why was it wrong? And what would I do if I had that information? Yeah. So I'm going to close this out here and, and bring us home, but I'd be curious on, on a more kind of forward-looking note, what's kind of the, the most, I guess, interesting development you've seen of late in AI and one that might be impactful that you're excited about and are tracking? So I would put it in two categories, Santosh. One is really development in AI, which is these large language models that have completely transformed the way we interact with AI, right? There's the underlying AI, but how you actually interact with it, you know, is yeah. going to change. And we talked about a co-pilot and all that. I think we're seeing the current ways of interaction with with compute being augmented with copilots, but I think there's a possibility for us to actually completely change how we interact. Not just you know go to a screen and type something or something is being read to us, but completely change that. And I think that we are on the cusp of actually discovering some of that stuff. It'll be very cute. It'll be it'll come on the commercial, the consumer side first, but how we yeah. bring it in the enterprise space is going to be very interesting. I think the bigger thing as I look at AI is not necessarily the problem, not necessarily, uh, I would say, you know, the next evolution of AI or the new innovations in AI. I think the biggest innovation that we need to do is how do we change our business processes to leverage all this compute that we have and all the connectivity that I have change that, that AI can now unlock, unleash. Like our mm. systems, our processes in the enterprise space were built 30, 40, 50 years ago with that kind of a technology constraint in mind. And we continue to take those forward for all sorts of good reasons, but a lot of bad reasons, right? Good reason being, I don't want to change anything if it's broken. So let's just continue to incrementally improve it. It has stood the test of time. But the compute that actually held the business processes back are now being held back, holding the compute back. Like we designed this, we broke our, our business process down into functional silos, departmental silos, because we didn't have the computer look at an end-to-end supply chain. We never, yeah. right? you just yeah. could not even, back in the days, you could not even run a complete constrained MRP. So what did you do? You ran an unconstrained MRP. We still do unconstrained MRP today, in spite of the fact. So we need to change our processes. Demand planning, supply planning, and transportation planning don't necessarily have to be one. They don't necessarily have to be three. They can be one, and they will be one very soon. So how does the business process change? I think that's the, in my mind, that is the next evolution for us to actually leverage everything that we have to go back and revisit the processes that were built 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago and now redesign them in this new world. And I look at AI less about the AI component of it. I look at how does these processes you know, kind of adopt them and what new things will we see when we actually start leveraging the compute that we have. Yeah, that's very interesting. And with that, thank you very much for spending the time with us here and sharing some of your wisdom. I think it's very helpful to kind of hear kind of the development of this technology within our industry from your vantage point. So 
with that, I look forward to hopefully hosting you again in the near future on another episode. Absolutely, Satosh. Appreciate the opportunity and look forward to coming back. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.